The Trudeau government created militarized no-go zones in Ottawa's center town. We've never seen anything like this before in Canadian history. What was it like on the inside this past weekend? We'll talk to a journalist who was there. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. So yesterday we brought you sort of a blow by blow of everything that happened over the weekend, all of the police brutality, all of the excessive uses of force against peaceful, unarmed protesters. We've never seen anything like this in Canada before. It was disturbing and disgusting to watch. On Monday night, after it was all over, the politicians got around to finally voting in favor of enacting this Emergencies Act, even though the Emergency Act Even though the emergency is gone, they cleared the protesters, they cleared the trucks, there's no blockades, there's no borders being blocked whatsoever. So we have this emergency in place, even though the events that called for the emergency uh, are over. And you could argue that they never even warranted such a drastic use of force. Well, I want to go back and look at some of, take a closer look at some of the things that happened over the weekend, some of the instances of police brutality. And to do that, to help uh, us understand what what happened. Uh, we're joined today by Andrew Lawton. Andrew Lawton is the host of the Andrew Lawton Show. He's a journalist here at True North, and he was on the ground in the middle of protests, including uh, at times being victimized by police brutality. He was sprayed in the face uh, with some kind of a chemical irritant, probably pepper spray. So Andrew, hope you're, hope you're doing okay. Thank you so much for all the reporting that you've done, and thank you for joining the show today. Hey, it's uh, great to be here. Obviously, I made it back in one piece, so all was well there. And and despite everything, this was such a, a hugely important moment in Canadian politics for media, for the political establishment, and also, I think, in Canadian history. So I was glad to uh, be able to be a small part of it for the True North team. Well, you, you helped so many people uh, get a better context of what was happening. And part of the reason that we wanted you to be there was so that we could all bear witness to the abuses that were happening uh, in the name of our government and in an effort uh, to, to, again, squash a protest that was peaceful, that had good intentions, that people that were unarmed. Um, it was it was wild to see. So, Andrew, can you can you walk us through, maybe set the scene a little bit uh, for, for folks who might not be too familiar with Ottawa or who haven't seen some of the footage yet? Like, what was what was it like you know you've gone to Ottawa many times what what were some of the major differences between a normal visit to Ottawa and a visit to Ottawa this past weekend well there were people there this past weekend I mean that was the great irony of it is that uh, when everyone was talking about uh, Spark Street which is the pedestrian thoroughfare in Ottawa and all the businesses shutting down it's like on a lot of weekends I think that's how it's felt most times I've been in Ottawa so in this particular case there was a, a bustle that just isn't normal in Ottawa on weekends. That's always been one of my frustrations with the city. And, and that's been pretty consistent since the very beginning of the protests arrival in Ottawa is that there's always been activity. The infamous uh, sights and scenes of this, like the bouncy castles and the hot tubs and the bales of hay and all of that, as much as these were novelties to a lot of people, they really did capture what had been the vibe leading up to this past weekend. Now, obviously, it it was fairly different this past weekend because the law enforcement action was carrying forward. But I should say, even on Friday, which was the day that I was pepper sprayed by police in front of the Shadow Laurier, just a couple of blocks west on Parliament Hill, there was still dancing, there was still music, they still had a DJ. So it was even as that was happening, and as this was coming to an end, it was still like that uh, sort of party at the end of the world atmosphere where people were still doing what they had done for several weeks prior. One of the things I saw that you tweeted was that you started to see 
uh, tow trucks come in. And, and, and prior to that, tow trucks had basically refused to get involved. They didn't want to be towing some of their buddies or some people that they knew in the convoy. Maybe they supported it or maybe they were just worried about uh, retribution. Um, there, there were also, we know, police checks and they sort of, the police did their best to uh, basically isolate part of the city, cordon it off. You couldn't get in unless you uh, ha- had a valid reason. Uh, c- can you speak to sort of the police presence and the and the militarization of Ottawa uh, in the pre in the in the lead up to clearing uh, par- the protests on Parliament Hill? Yeah, and uh, an interesting story of this. And I had actually been just by virtue of where I was standing, was able to get a pretty good view of this on on. Thursday it was. So before the police action had commenced, I had just arrived in Ottawa. I checked into the hotel and then was was out just seeing how the, the situation was. And I was at that main stage area, which was on the back of a flat or on the, the flatbed of a truck right in front of Parliament Hill. And just as I arrived, I noticed that police were lining up. Dozens of police officers were lining up on Wellington Street in front of this. And I, and I wondered if this was them starting to move right now. They were in the midst of the crowd. And what had actually happened was they had been called by convoy supporters, by protesters, to deal with someone who was uh, being very disruptive, someone who had uh, allegedly spat on people that were there. And police moved in, and in a very methodical fashion, they built a perimeter around this guy. They arrested him. He, he was quite resistant to that, but they ended up carrying him to the police car, and then they marched single file out, and people were thanking them and applauding them. So police were in. Police were moving around. Police were walking around. There was no issue. When it became an issue was on Friday when the police presence switched to being that front line that was pushing protesters further and further back and ultimately squeezing them so they had no choice but to get off Wellington Street. But before then, they were there, they were around, but they actually had a a pretty solid working relationship, the liaison officers, with some of the convoy organizers and protesters. Well, that's sort of what we've seen over the past month is that there's uh, camaraderie. There's been a lot of sort of TikTok videos and Instagram videos of police sort of saying, look, we we wish we could be out there with you. We support you. Uh, and, and, and even throughout the protests, you know, high fives and fist pumps. And it, seem, it seems like some police, many police were in spirit supportive, uh, at least in the early days of the Freedom Convoy. But obviously there was a switch uh, at some point that the, 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 the use of force became evident. Uh, I, I shared with you earlier, Andrew, I'll read it now. There's a tweet by an individual named Dennis Rancourt or Denny Rancourt, who is a, I believe he was a retired uh, physics professor. And he, he, he's an Ottawa resident. He said, I live in the center of Ottawa. Police blockades everywhere are 100 times more disruptive than the Freedom Convoy ever was. We had to argue with police and show ID to simply go home after walking our dog with my wife. So it seems to me that, that, well, at least according to this account, um, that the police really moved in and made it difficult uh, for residents to to, to get around. Uh, was Was that the experience that you had as well? Oh, 100%, especially by Sunday. Because by Sunday, police had moved all of the protesters out of the areas where they had been demonstrating. Uh, most of the the really, if, if I can call them violence or violent incidents or the flare-ups, whatever term you prefer, had happened on, on Friday and then Saturday. So by Sunday, police had set up a fence that was around several city blocks. They also had very hard perimeters for access. And one thing that we saw, and there were some videos of this that were very, very disturbing, police harassing individuals walking down streets that were open 
just one woman who wanted to get a coffee and they found out she was from Alberta and said, we're going to arrest you unless you turn around. And the officer in the video you see tries to grab her phone because he doesn't like that she is filming. So I was able to, as media, and we can talk about just how this process unfolded if you'd like, but I was able to get into the, the Uber secure zone on Sunday. And it was interesting that to, I, to do that, I had to go through, I think it was two or three checkpoints, really. And then when you get onto Wellington Street, the street that had been filled with trucks was now filled with police vehicles, but it actually looked almost identical to how it did a week prior. Well, it's really interesting, and I, I hear the city council uh, enjoyed having a uh, pedestrian uh, walkway so much. They're now considering debating uh, keeping that as pedestrian only, which is kind of silly because that again was the, one of the main justifications <laughs> for clearing the protest and uh, enacting the Emergencies Act was that that it was blocking uh, businesses and it was preventing people from being able to go about their lives. Um, and it's funny how the police stepped in. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about um, you as a journalist on the ground because I know there was a lot of journalists, both legacy media. And and independent. Uh, my observation is that the independent journalists were much more willing to sort of get close to the front lines, get in on the action. They wanted to really uh, show the audience what it was like uh, to be on the ground and that the legacy media were there as well, maybe a bit more removed doing doing their, uh, you know, television hits and their reports uh, from afar. Uh, wh wh why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the, the journalists that were there and the sort of uh, diff differing experiences that you had? I, I would say it's not entirely accurate to say that all of the legacy media folks were doing their reporting from afar. There were a number of uh, camera crews that I saw that were pretty close to the front line. And one challenge, though, that I'd note in my experience there compared to theirs is that they had very large units, whereas they would have an on-camera reporter, a videographer, a producer whose job it was to just pull the videographer so that they could walk backwards while the producer is looking at where things are. And then they would also have someone else. And then in many cases, in fact, almost all, they would have a, a private security guard that was with them. So you'd have four or five person crews, which were able to move relatively seamlessly. And also, I think to say in, you know, big flashing letters in a way, you know, we're media, don't you dare try anything with us. Whereas for independent journalists, we don't have that. We didn't have the private security. We didn't have the giant mammoth-sized camera. We were just there. In some cases, independent journalists were just there with their phones. In some cases, they had a bit more sophisticated setups. But the reality is it was a lot easier to, to beat up a, an independent journalist if that's what you wanted to do because you could claim, well, I didn't know that's what they were doing. I, I didn't know they were there in that capacity. So, I, I mean, for example, when we saw that video of Alexa Lavoie from Rebel, she was very close to the front line when she got hit with uh, some canister on her leg. Uh, for my part, I had actually made sure to have a bit of distance between myself and the front line when I ended up getting pepper sprayed and it still didn't really save me as we saw. And as I, I guess in one, I didn't see, but I would say that for the journalists covering this on the ground, getting in there, there were a lot of incidents that really need to be brought up. Uh, there was one a pool photographer or a wire photographer. I can't remember which agency who was arrested and zip tied and had to uh, get his editor to help have police release him. And you have to wonder if that had happened to an independent journalist, would police have been receptive to the call from you as they were from uh, someone at some fancy New York agency and other journalists as well threatened with arrest. I was at one point threatened with arrest for walking down a street that I had a legal right to walk down. So these are, are significant challenges 
challenges that were facing uh, journalists on the ground. It wasn't just the, the incidents you saw, but a lot of stuff that you didn't see as well. Well, it, so I want to I want to talk a little bit about this because so the Ottawa police were explicitly saying even if you're a journalist, you have to get out of there. We saw them handing out notices earlier in the week, uh, and they handed one directly to a woman who was setting up a camera. Obviously, a journalist. Uh, we have the Ottawa police who were live tweeting. You can comment on this before bec- as well because I've never seen it before, where the police were sort of refusing to uh, reply to questions from the media. I know because I put in several questions over the weekend. They weren't replying. They weren't replying to calls emails, tweets, uh, they, they were just sort of putting out their own explanation of what was going on. And one of the things they said, so so here on February 18th, they tweeted, all media who are attending the area, please keep a distance and stay out of police operations for your safety. Anyone found within areas undergoing enforcement may be subject to arrest. There will be a media availability later today on Elgin Street. And so they're basically saying, don't, don't come, don't be here. If you if you are you may get arrested. Um, just come to our media availability and we'll and we'll give you your talking points uh, later on. We'll tell you we'll tell you what you how, what you can report and how you can report it. Uh, c- can you comment on 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 this idea that that the police suddenly have the power to arrest journalists who are just trying to tell a story to Canadians? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought this up because this was something I was trying to sound the alarm about even before that tweet from them. Because I went right to the source. I went to the Emergencies Act, which was where police were drawing much of their power that they used in the past weekend. And the Emergencies Act is very clear in any secure area that's designated as such by the government, by police, whatever the case is. It only applies to restricting the flow of people that are there for unlawful activities. Now, even if you accept that the protest is unlawful, which I don't, but even if you accept that being on Parliament Hill in that form of protest was an unlawful activity, being a journalist is not. Being there to document, not to participate, is not an unlawful activity. Now, police were saying that you, the onus was on you to prove that you were there for a lawful activity. And I could say, well, I'm here as a journalist. I'm here with True North. Here's a letter from my editor. I'm here to report. I'm not here to protest. And that was not something that worked with any universality, quite the opposite. But that was what the law said. The law said you can be there if you have a lawful reason. And it said, basically, if you live or work in the area. Well, if you're a working journalist, you're there for work. So there were significant problems. And and then that tweet from Ottawa police was just not grounded in the law. But the law as it exists on paper doesn't matter when you're in a situation and an officer is threatening to arrest you. It's wild. And even the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, Andrew, jumped in and they wrote this warning journalists about safety risks in the protest zone is reasonable. Threatening them with arrest for doing their jobs is not. Time and time again, Canadian courts have ruled against exclusion zones and other limits on the press. So this whole idea, Andrew, that we had like a red zone in Ottawa, that video of the police officers harassing a woman from Ontario for the crime of wanting to get a coffee uh, or walking down the street, uh, brutality against journalists like yourself and Alexa over at the Rebel, uh, the the instance I hadn't heard of that, but of a photojournalist getting arrested, zip tied, it's wild. It doesn't seem like that aligns with uh, the rule of law in Canada. Um, even even just the idea, Andrew, that the Emergency Act was supposed to be debated on Friday, and they canceled that because of the police activities that were caused from the Emergency Act being enacted. I mean, can, can you speak uh, to, to, I know you're not a lawyer, but can you speak to the legality of like, I mean, there's such a, it seems like such a separation of the Canadian Civil Liberties Organization, which is a, you know, left-wing progressive organization, is calling out the abuse uh, against the rule of law in this country. And it seems like there's a total disconnect between the letter of the law and 
the you know the activities and the actions of police on the ground in Ottawa like how did that situation happen what do you make of it yeah, and just on the note of the cancelling the session of Parliament, this is where geography is a, a bit interesting and tells a, a rather unique story here. Because on Friday, which was when they decided to cancel the House of Commons sitting, which was, again, focused specifically on debating the emergency stack, the police action was several blocks east of Parliament Hill. The police action was in front of the Shadow Laurier. And it was on Saturday when the police action was right in front of Parliament Hill and parliamentarians were back in. They were back there when at that point they had to lock the doors and institute a lockdown and say no one could go in or out of Parliament Hill. So once the MPs and their staff went in in the morning, they locked up and, and that was that. And I think that a lot of that was due to the backlash from canceling Friday when it would have been much safer because on Friday, that area right in front of Parliament Hill was completely open. People were passing through, police were passing through, politicians, protesters, anyone could go through. So the Emergencies Act, I read, I went, like I said earlier, right to the source when that came out, because I knew that this was going to be something I wanted to cover. And I was even nervous. Am I going to encounter issues trying to get from the airport to downtown? Now, fortunately, I got in before they set up the perimeter they ended up setting up. But the challenge is that your rights, when they exist on a piece of paper, it's all well and good, and they may help you in court down the road. But on the ground, you're relying on a police officer's interpretation of the law, a police officer's interpretation of the orders they've received, and the person who gave those orders is interpretation of the law. So there are a lot of areas there where what you have a right to do can break down and deny you that right and, and put you in harm's way in, in some cases, as we saw, whether it's pepper spray or tear gas or arrest, and, and certainly put your rights in jeopardy when it comes to you trying to do your job. Well, I think that's why it's so important uh, that that so many people are now retaining lawyers and going back back to the letter of the law, because you're right, it, it is based on interpretation on the ground. You know, these police officers are obviously under a great deal of stress with the orders that they're being told and the crowd in front of them. And, I, 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 you know, it can't be easy. However, um, we, we certainly saw a lot of abuse and and I'm glad a lot of it was caught on camera. I want to ask you, Andrew, a little bit about the sort of reaction coming out of the weekend. I I noticed that Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, uh, she she sent out a message on Twitter saying this, I am appalled to see Canadian journalists assaulted, harassed, intimidated, and prevented from doing their job. It's unacceptable. Journalists are critical to our democracy and must be free and safe to do their work. Now, this is a little bit coded because we don't know exactly what journalist she's talking about. And there were sort of two different instances of this, this sort of intimidation, harassment, uh, abuse preventing someone from doing their jobs. Um, there's the, the there's abuse aimed at journalists from the police, from the enforcement. Uh, the tweets that we showed, you know, what happened to yourself, uh, the, you know, people being arrested. There was another um, independent journalist, a YouTuber, who was who was arrested just simply for asking for directions. It seems. Uh, I don't think that's what Melanie Jolie is talking about. I think she's talking about um, another side of the reports. There was. Um, uh, a Canadian press story that came out over the weekend as well. Journalism experts say threats to the press during a protest were a wake-up call. So, so they're talking about a different kind of harassment of journalists, and this is taking place by the truckers, they allege, against journalists. I know there was that one clip of a French TV reporter who was pushed on air, totally unacceptable, and I think everyone who sees that um, is uh, you know, annoyed and condemns that kind of idiotic behavior. I, I'm wondering, though, Andrew, did you see 
the journalists get harassed by truckers and by protesters? And can can you sort of speak to uh, the, 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 this media narrative that's coming out of the protest um, that, that journalists were somehow unsafe and that the truckers and the protesters uh, create a hostile environment for them? I did see the harassment. I, I don't want to say it was by truckers. It was by people that were in the protest, uh, whatever they were, whoever they were, I, I don't know. There were two incidents on a Saturday, I think it was, uh, one involving Glenn McGregor, another involving Evan Solomon, where people were surrounding them, shouting all sorts of obscenities at, at one point, enough that a, a hit had to be canceled because they couldn't go to air with what was being said. And at another point, uh, someone getting very in your face, very aggressive. And I, I didn't see Glenn McGregor for all that long. But I, I will say about Evan Solomon, I saw Evan a number of times over both of my visits to Ottawa at the beginning and, and at the end. And anytime someone had a grievance with him, I saw him take all the time in the world listening to that person and hearing them out, which is exactly, I think, what we need to have more of from any, anyone in society, which is more dialogue and discussion. And in some cases, that's not enough. People just want to scream. So I could see if you're a, a reporter that's out there alone, I could see that being very threatening. I mean, obviously, words are not words are not actual physical violence. But if someone is shouting at your face, it's the type of situation that could be a powder keg. I think it's wrong. I think it needs to be condemned. I condemned it when I saw it when I was broadcasting live. And I also said something later on about it. However, and, and this is the however, I think there has been an almost exclusive focus on that form of harassment and targeting of journalists and not on the harassment and targeting that's taken place by the state when it comes to the voices like the Canadian Association for Journalists and like a lot of the journalists themselves that are talking about this online. These companies have equipped their journalists, like I mentioned, with large crews, with bodyguards. In one case, there was a, you know, the, the, one of the beefiest people I'd ever seen protecting uh, one particular reporter. I can't even remember who it was, but they had this protection to uh, basically serve as a buffer in case the crowd gets out of hand. And I think that's fine. I think employers obviously want to make sure their staff are safe when they're going out into the field. But you also have to arm yourself against the government when the government's going to go after you. And I mean, arm yourself legally, arm yourself by knowing your rights, by asserting your rights. And it's been quite unsettling that a lot of these voices that for a month have been talking about uh, condemning abuse against journalists and harassment of journalists have not also been as well as that going after the threats to independent media. And I think one of the big reasons for that is because some of the situations we talked about earlier weren't happening to legacy media journalists. Right. Well, I, th I think it's an interesting conversation. Perhaps we can have another day because, you know, that, 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 that sort of anger and vitriol that we see against those legacy media reporters. I'm happy to hear your report there, Andrew, and uh, good for Evan Solomon for, you know, keeping a cool head and, and being willing to engage in dialogue, something that uh, liberal politicians in this country are unable to do. But obviously, that anger doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It's like, uh, from my perspective, these legacy journalists, legacy media journalists have been feeding a fake narrative about the truckers from day one, saying that this was a violent insurrection, uh, saying that they were occupying Ottawa. I appreciated Andrew Shear's tweets, uh, pushing back at Evan Solomon and, and uh, Glenn McGregor, saying, what, what do you mean occupied? None of the buildings are occupied. When, when you think of occupied, uh, the capital, you, you, you kind of think that 
that people are inside the building holding people hostage. I mean, that's sort of what the word conjures an image of or, or some kind of a foreign occupation of foreign troops. So, so, so just this sort of hyperbolic use of language that, that we see from a lot of journalists feeding this really irresponsible narrative, predicting violence, uh, bringing out the worst, taking you know the one, the one idiot who showed up with a Nazi flag and pretending that the entire group possessed a Nazi ideology. I mean, there's so much malfeasance on behalf of the legacy media that I think that some of the frustration, obviously, you're right, the behavior is totally unacceptable and needs to be condemned. You shouldn't, you shouldn't take it out that way. Um, however, th th there's something there that the media need, the legacy media journalists need to do some self-reflecting and, 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 and understand that the reason that these people hate them is because of the coverage that they've given and the way that they are, are feeding the news to Canadians. So uh, we'll have that conversation another day, Andrew. I want to ask a final question Yeah, here. If, if I can just jump sure. in on that for a moment. I, I think it's cyclical. And I actually had this conversation with someone that I met in Ottawa. I said, okay, even if, let's say that every one of your grievances is valid, and, and heavens knows I, I know lots of reasons that people can be frustrated with the mainstream media, but even if your perception is entirely valid, entirely accurate, is what you're doing going to do anything to change that? Or is it only going to give them more ammunition to then tarnish all of them? And the person did to their credit say, wow, you know, that's that's actually a good point. So, so even if it's correct, there's a tactical question there. So I'm not saying don't be frustrated with the media. I'm saying that people need to channel that in a way that is uh, producing the, uh, better results. And, and the best advice I could give, if you don't like it, if you don't think they're going to listen, ignore it. The power comes from people watching and giving them credibility and giving them ammunition. Oh, that's so true, Andrew. I absolutely agree. When I saw that footage of the individual pushing the French reporter on a live TV hit, I couldn't think of a stupider thing for a protester to do to galvanize everybody against them. Like, like that's going to be the big takeaway. Look at this. This is an actual assault that we caught on camera. It's the stupidest way to show your frustration with the media. The best way, by the way, is you're right. Turn off, turn off, turn off the legacy media. Uh, turn on True North, share it with your friends, find other independent sources, find independent journalists uh, that are telling the story in a, in a fair and accurate way. I, I completely agree with that point. Just final question for you, Andrew. What's what's next? You know, we we, we sort of see the elites in Ottawa breathing a sigh of relief, a, a little bit of celebratory um, atmosphere there that it's quiet and calm and things are back to normal aside from the large police presence. But the, at least the truckers are gone from their perspective. We have this emergency act in place. We ha we had Trudeau hinting over the weekend during a press conference that they're going to keep it in place for a couple months just in case the truckers come back. Uh, we know that the police are actively uh, trying to identify anyone who's at the protest uh, to try to freeze their bank accounts, apparently. Ho hopefully uh, nothing like that happens to you. But, uh, you know, you, you were on the ground. You have a good feeling for these things politically. Uh, what, what do you expect uh, to happen next? And how do you think this thing is all going to wrap up? So I, I think the challenge with the grassroots movement is that as much as there were people that became the voices of the convoy, there was no hierarchy. There was no official convoy leadership. You had one group that was controlling the money. You had a, a number of different operational centers. And, and this was a story that I, I was actually starting to dig into and was making good headway before, of course, the, the police moved in. You had a different you know, logistical operations that were supporting the convoy in different ways, financially, with security, with getting food to truckers, with getting fuel, all of this sort of stuff. And But even with that, you still have a grassroots movement, which is why some people wanted to leave before others. Other people were saying, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line, until the police moved in uh, at that very last moment. And even now, you still have that. Uh, Tom Morazzo, who I spoke to, who's one of the uh, organizers, for lack of a better term, he's saying that we need to shift our battle 
to the courts. He said the, the convoy is over, the protest is over, but we need to now assert our rights in court uh, over the money, over our civil liberties, and over the vaccine mandates. You have other people that as well, in large numbers, and I don't know how many, are literally 30 minutes outside of Ottawa with their trucks fueled up, ready to go. And some of them may want to head right back into downtown Ottawa the second those uh, police blockades are lifted. Now, will it be as powerful? I'm assuming police will have some way to prevent that. Maybe it's by keeping checkpoints in place. But I see a lot of the measures that the government could do to prevent a second blockade from forming, a second protest from forming, will be a lot like taking off your shoes to go through the airport, where it becomes, you know, in a way more intrusive than what it was trying to stop and more enduring than what it was trying to stop. And all of these things that government and police will have to do are all because they failed to do the obvious thing from the very beginning, which was, let's talk to these people. A hundred percent, Andrew. All right, well, we really appreciate your reporting. Thank you so much for being on the ground and thanks for keeping us up to date on all things uh, Canadian politics. Uh, folks can check out the Andrew Lawton Show. It's, it's a great program. Is it, is it two days a week now, Andrew, or three days a week? Well, it's, the convoy has thrown the whole schedule into alert. So we're, uh, we're rebuilding and we've actually started doing them live. So uh, we'll, have, uh, we'll have more this week and then hopefully we'll settle back into a groove next week with uh, three shows a week again. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. That's Andrew Lawton. I'm Candace Malcolm. This is a Candace Malcolm show.